Welcome to the Valley Beit Midrash podcast, a program of Valley Beit Midrash, a global center of learning and action. We're bringing you the best in diverse, pluralistic Jewish wisdom, all with the goal of improving lives in our global community. I'm Rabbi Shmuley Yanklowitz. Let's get started. So the person who is ready, the person here to talk to, is Rabbi Daniel Daniel Hartman, president of the Shalom Hartman Institute, who I've had a chance to not go there, but I've had a chance to hear you speak a few times at various events. And so what, when, when Shmuley suggested to you, it was like, ding, that's it, that's perfect. Um, he's written many wonderful books, uh, including Putting God Second, which is one of my favorites, and I hope you've read it. And if not, I hope you will. I'm currently unable to read my paper very well, so my apologies for, for messing up the bio reading. But uh, Rabbi Hartman is founder uh, of Shalom Hartman, or not founder, president of Shalom Hartman Institute in Jerusalem. And as you know, does wonderful podcasts. Has written many books. There's a new book coming out in November. Uh, Who are the Jews, and what can we become? Which is such a profound question, and I can't wait to read the answer. I've already pre-ordered the book from Amazon, so I'm looking forward to that. And uh, his podcast is wonderful, and I'm unable to speak anymore. So with that, Rabbi Hartman. Here I thought that this tonight was just another lecture. Um. I feel the weight, and um, I am honored to be here. Thank you for inviting me. I want to talk this evening. I'm going to speak briefly, and then Shmuley and I were going to have a conversation. Um, I want to talk about Israel. At many periods in your life and in my life, there are issues pertaining to Israel. There's questions of the relationship between Israel and world Jewry. There are questions of the Kotel. There were questions of, of, of settlement and immigration. There were different moments in Israel's growth where the Jewish people around the world thought, were called upon to participate in adding the build blocks to what is now the state of Israel. Today, there is no particular issue. It's not immigration. There is no particular cause that we need to talk about. The cause today is Israel. Is Israel itself. Is Israel's future. When we look at the last 20 years, since the end of the Oslo Accord and the beginning of what was then the Second Intifada, Israeli society, not as much you, but Israeli society as a whole changed. Imagine a number of years in which the future is glorious. Imagine all of your dreams being able to taste the possibility that they will be fulfilled. Principle of which was the dream that our children would not have to experience what we experienced when we went to war. 
that we could actually, our children would be safe. And that Israel, Jewish people and the Palestinian people would live side by side in peace, in mutual respect. It was glorious. Mid-90s, glorious period of time. And I know that they say it's better to have loved and lost than never to have loved at all. But it's not always true. <laughs> and even if it is true, sometimes dreaming and actually believing that your dream is going to be actualized. And the moment of of, of profound breaking, transform, I believe, most of the Jews in the state of Israel. A form of PTSD in which Israeli society was beginning to reach out and to ask questions about what could the future be? What do we want? Who do we want to be? What do we want for our children? And feeling that our destiny is not shaped by our dreams, but is shaped by our neighborhood. And like Jews throughout history, we're going to survive. And for 20 something years, Israeli society has principally looked inward. Looked to, how do I create a society which could maximize within this crazy neighborhood the safety of the Jewish people and of my country? And how can I, in the midst of this, since I'm not going to get what I want, how do I create a Garden of Eden in the midst of this hell? What do I need to do? And Israeli society, in one of the most remarkable, remarkable moves of any nation, started to invest in its own well-being. It's all we care about. Stop talking about peace. Stop talking about other people. Stop talking about tikkun olam. We have a right to be, and we're going to now concentrate on what on being. And Prime Minister Netanyahu's greatest strength is that he is the Prime Minister of being. And Israeli society trusts him to protect them and to build our economy. This process was a remarkably successful one. And Israelis, in the midst of everything, we were able to advance our security dimensions to, with the exception of Iran, engage only in asymmetrical conflicts. 
in which our enemy might be able to harm us, but we basically remove existential danger from off the daily agenda of our country. And we used our technology to limit even more the ability of our enemies not to kill us, not to destroy us, that they can't do, but even their ability to harm us. And whether it's we want to build a fence or a wall, or whether we're going to move our military to concentrate on special forces, and whether we're going to develop particular skills, no longer in massive tank battles, but in anti-terrorist abilities. And we're going to build iron domes. And we're going to build a Garden of Eden. Startup nation. We're going to prosper financially. And Israel today is a wealthy country. We can't save, we can't guarantee the safety of our children. We can't create in the Middle East, in the dream of Paris, a new Middle East. Well, we're going to be, we, for the Jews, we're going to take care of ourselves. It was so successful. Israel has maybe the fifth most powerful army in the world. Fifth most vibrant economy. The shekel for years was the most powerful currency in the world. And you know what the kicker is? Israelis became happier and happier and happier. Do you know how happy we are today? There's somebody who has some calculus. I don't know if it's an accurate calculus, but since the results are complimentary, we Jews love it. Do you know what number happy we are in the world? Nah, no one's beating Finland. You know, like Sweden, you know, like this. We're number four. I want you to imagine this. In the Middle East, in the midst of terror, we are the fourth most happy people in the world. You're number 18, by the way. You want to understand Netanyahu's power? was that people felt that in this journey of self-protection and self-concern, this is a man who will best serve us. In the midst of this, even issues of state and religion or any other internal issue became subjugated to this cause. So why do I sit with a ultra-Orthodox party? Why do I accept certain legislation? Israeli society by and large said, it's okay. We need it for the sake of the coalition that's gonna give us the returns that we want. It's okay. Having a coalition which could further this cause was an end unto itself. Because on the surface, I need you, you have to remember, Netanyahu is not, or the Likud aren't natural coalition partners with ultra-Orthodox. In 2003, Netanyahu was the enemy of ultra-Orthodox. 
when he put forth a budget and various legislations to limit allocations to ultra-Orthodox to ensure that they would go to work. He was at the time their enemy. But over the years, a very, very stable coalition was formed. And this was its primary agenda. Now on an individual level, Israeli society wasn't just materialistic. On an individual level, Jewish life grew in Israel, moral discussion, concerns, values, permeated the private sector. But when it came to voting, security and economics were the single defining issue for the electorate. And in many ways, as an Israeli, it's been a remarkable run. It's been a remarkable time. While there are challenges, life in Israel is joyful. Life in Israel is filled with possibility. Israelis have the highest birth rate of any OECD country. Having children is the greatest testimony of the possibilities that the future is bringing. Even though we can't have peace, we have learned to live and to set aside the Palestinian conflict and to pursue our agenda as a country. Something dramatic has changed. And the Israeli society that you see today is not the same Israeli society in PTSD, post first, second intifada. It is a society going through a transformation which makes me more optimistic for the future of Israel than I have ever been since the beginning of the Oslo Accord, which didn't work out. But if we're talking about Israel's future, right now, a new chapter and a new story is beginning to unfold. The same energy that Israeli citizens called upon in order to work on our military, physical, and economic security for major sectors in Israeli society is now being marshaled not to talk about how do we ensure Israel's survival? How do we ensure the being of Israel? But what type of Israel do we want to have? It is so significant that it has even single-handedly destroyed the left-right-wing divide in Israel. Just Netanyahu, just Net not Netanyahu. Not dissimilar to just Trump or not Trump. 
created two very solid blocks. If you're for Netanyahu or not, you're on a different side of the equation. And it locked communities away from each other, as well as certain communities together with each other. If you're a just Netanyahu person, then you have to be with Netanyahu and you create a coalition around that. If you're a not Netanyahu, even if you naturally don't necessarily agree, Avigdor Lieberman or Bennett or Saar, these are all names that if you don't know, Google them. Sit with merits. Because we, what do we share? A just not Netanyahu ideology. Does being a Likud member mean that you don't care for issues of human rights? Quite to the contrary. In the history of Israel, liberal values, by which I mean a commitment to liberty of the individual, was always the agenda of the Likud party. More than the Labour Party, by the way, who saw individual rights as a problem in the pursuit of the building of, you, of, the building of a country. It was Menachem Begin who put forth and always fought for human rights in Israeli society. It was the most right-wing prime minister in the history of Israel, Yitzhak Shamir, who when Mayor Kahana was a member of the Knesset, and when he would get up to speak, it was Yitzhak Shamir who stood up, short little guy, so, but he stood up and led powerful like a rock, stood up and led the whole Likud party out of the assembly. He refused to stay in the assembly when somebody who he believed was a racist was speaking. Holding on to the land of Israel might be necessary for security. It might be our obligation because it is our inheritance. But what does that mean about human rights? Concern for um, um, strong judiciary. This was very much the Likud party. But over the years, a coalition was formed because it was the strongest and most natural coalition to further the, the security and economic agenda. Part of what's happening now is a redrawing of the map of Israeli society. What is your attitude towards whether the ultra-Orthodox in Israel should have to study math or English in order to have their schools funded? Is that connected to whether you believe Abu Mazen wants peace or doesn't want peace? Is that connected to whether you believe settlements are necessary or unnecessary, unnecessary for the future of this world? Should women, should we have an Israel separate but equal when it comes to women 
in Haredi or in certain religious Zionist sections, is that connected to a right-left-wing divide? Should there be two kotels to serve different types of Jewish ideologies and sensitivities in Israel? Bennett is the one who pushed it. Sharansky is the one who came up with the deal. Netanyahu is the one who advocated. This is not a right-wing, left-wing issue. But because of the just Netanyahu, not Netanyahu, we fortified a division in Israel. And the Israel that you could see now, you see it in the marches, partially, but you also see it in all the polls. Something new is happening. And the issue today in Israel is Israel. Not our survival against Iran. But what type of country do we want to have? For decades, while we concentrated on security and economics, we knew that we wouldn't fall off the cliff. Because we had somebody in Abba or in Ima, like your Abba. And by the way, every, every father should be blessed to have a son who speaks that way about that's about, that's, that's as good as it gets. But we had an Abba and an Ima who would make sure that we don't get lost. And do you know what that Abba and Ima was called? The Supreme Court. We liked an activist Supreme Court. They're supposed to take care, they're gonna take care. Netanyahu lived by it because he himself is not an extreme person, but he would have to build coalitions with people who he did not agree with. So he always tried to have someone to the left of him so that he could say, I have no choice. But he could also sit and say, I would do it, but the Supreme Court doesn't let me. It just doesn't let me. And by the way, this is just a little window which I won't get into, but you could look up and read more on it. One of the reasons why certain segments of the religious Zionist community have such animosity to the Supreme Court is because if the Supreme Court is Mar'aba and Ima, how come you didn't protect me in Gaza? How come you didn't protect me? You're supposed to care about rights. What about my right to live? What about my right to, um, to trial, to innocence until being proven guilty? And a lot of what went on in Israel around the withdrawal from Gaza entailed not insignificant violation of religious Zionist rights. And there's a visceral, it's like a, when your father or mother betrays you, you're supposed to be the protector, but I see you're selective in your protection. But for much of the country, they took care, it was fine. Nobody thought about does the Supreme Court have too much power, not enough power. Life was fine. And in fact, for the majority of this period of time, we had a Netanyahu right-wing government. It didn't have to be this way, but it is a blessing that it was. And with that, I'll conclude and we'll start truth. A reform of the judiciary, 
There is no single human institution that is not open to a reform. Anybody who claims that a human institution is perfect is either a fool or an idol worshiper. Every human institution could be questioned. Every human institution, somebody could say, is there a better way to do it? For sure. A reform, who could talk? And before this process, I never thought about it. Now I spent over 100, 150 hours studying. Now I know that in fact, there are lots of legitimate issues with some of the power that Israel's Supreme Court has. A reform, sure we could talk. But because what was put on the table wasn't a reform, but the reform, a package, and it was done in a way which was clearly not a part, or at least as it was communicated, wasn't communicated as a way of improving Israel's judiciary. It became a power play of I'm going to win. In two months, I'm going to put together the reform, which would have made Israel's Supreme Court the weakest Supreme Court in any Western democracy. Not a reform. In the current status, Israel's Supreme Court is the most powerful Supreme Court of any Western democracy, as it is now. The reform, as in, a total, as it's, in its totality, is going to be devastating. And Israeli society looked and said, okay, we have money, we have wealth, we have security, but for what? And all of a sudden, issues of state and religion, issues of minority rights, issues of women's rights, issues of LGBTQ rights, aren't assumed as something that you could compromise for the sake of, all of a sudden the package was put forth and Israeli society, this is not who I want to be. You can argue in many Israelis debate whether pilots or reservists should say I'm not going to serve. And it's not a simple issue. But the feeling that it represents is exactly the sense that the system, the fundamental concern has shifted. I was ready to die for Israel, Israelis said, many Israelis. But now they're asking, what is the Israel that I want to die for? Liberal values, liberal Jewish values, and democratic values. Not in the liberal sense of a met where in a partisan language, I'm talking about liberties in the classics. The sense that it was the Republican Party, which was always the more liberal. I'm again, I'm not touching your mess. <laughs> really, a, no, I'm not going there. But I just don't want to be misunderstood. Like, oh, he's a you know, progressive. Like, oh, that's your shit. All of a sudden, Israel is saying, this is what I want. And as somebody who believes that the future of Zionism is dependent on our ability to reflect the best of Jewish values, 
for sure. We always have to survive. And there's nobody in Israel who's a pacifist. And there's nobody in Israel who doesn't take Israel's security concerns um, um, seriously. And there's no one who even doesn't say that it is the first agenda. But now, there's a new Israel being formed right before your eyes. It started with the reform, but the issue is not reforming the courts or not reform. That's not the issue. The issue is the hundreds of legislations which will be put forth if there isn't an Abba and an Ima watching, or if there isn't a coalition which is watching. Because Israeli coalitions and Israeli voters have allowed a process where they don't have to worry. It's almost an infantile process. It doesn't matter. I could say what I want to say. It just won't happen. Like, I know. And now, there's a moment of maturation in Israel. Where will it go? We're not sure. But as educators, as Zionists, as lovers of Israel, there's a new potential. A potential not merely to have an Israel that's strong and that Israeli citizens who are happy, but an Israel which is fighting for its soul. Now, there are debates. There are. There are serious concerns. And we don't all share the same idea of what Israel must be. But that's the conversation I want to have. Paradoxically, the ultra-Orthodox are the ones who thought very seriously about what Israel should be. But it's time for modern Orthodox, traditional, secular, It's time for Jews and non-Jews to start the next conversation of Zionism. Now that we are, and we still have to watch, but now not just to be, but to start a conversation of who we should be and to live in Israel at this moment. I personally demonstrate every single week. It's exhilarating. We're on the dawn of a new era. And um, enjoy it. And as we'll talk, participate in it. It doesn't matter whether you're Democrat or Republican here. And it doesn't matter whether you're right wing or left wing there. It's time for new categories. Time for new thinking. And it's time to engage in the new challenge of Zionism. As always, so powerful and brilliant and thought-provoking. So thank you for being with us. Um, you know, maybe we can start out here in the diaspora before we go into the inside baseball of Israel. So, you know, there are those who demonize Israel consistently out here, who it so happens we are the worst of the oppressors. And so happens we are the worst of the colonizers. It happens that we are the worst occupiers. Um, and every tool should be used against this project, whether it's boycotts or um, you know, supporting violent coalitions. And there's a whole bunch of strategies as to how to combat that. And I wonder what strategies you think 
are most uh, effective and, and hold our moral integrity intact. Those who want to make sure the right politicians are elected, those who want to uh, educate or do better PR, so to speak. And I wonder, like, for Jews who feel that there is a growing diaspora threat against the state, what do you think keeps our moral integrity intact and is strategically most effective? Hi. <laughs> What's really difficult is that we are part of a tradition that sees criticism as a halachic obligation. And the fact that you're laughing, which was great, it's actually one of the 613 commandments. When you see a fellow Jew doing something wrong, you are obligated. It's in Leviticus 19. You're obligated to stand up and talk. Love your neighbor involves criticizing them when you think they're doing something wrong. That's our tradition. Being silent is an act of alienation, not an act of loyalty. So in that context, it's very hard for us to figure out what are the boundaries. Now for decades, we train you to be silent. Not everybody listened, but a big part of the Zionist discourse was you have to be lovers and supporters who only say amen. And by and large, you accept it. Israelis wanted you to be silent because they really didn't value your opinions. Because it's not just that you don't live in Israel. According to Zionist ideology, the only meaningful Jewish life is in Israel. The world is divided between Shoah and Tukumah, between Holocaust and renewal and rebirth. Israel is rebirth. That means you are a Shoah phenomenon. You have nothing to contract. You, you know what? So you have money. So help. But to think that you're a player, you're not. And Israelis, we're not ambivalent about you. They just didn't like you. <laughs> it's deep. There's like something you shouldn't be. Like, who are you? To oh, me. You're just, it's not just that you don't know. Just, you're, you get to be silent spectators to use the base in the show. And I'm the player in the show. And on top of that, especially since so much of our agenda has been security, you're gonna determine or try to shape when my child goes to war. It's passage, do you know what passage means? It's not just wrong, it's aesthetically repulsive. Really? My kid? should die or live, really? And most North American Jews understood. They felt, you know, still six to 10,000 miles away. 
So there was, there was criticism, but it wasn't conditional. And there were conversations about who you can criticize, who can criticize, where you can criticize, what you can do, it's like all of that stuff. And there has been ongoing conversation. It's not that people silenced North American Jews uh, like Beinhardt State. It was, it was an internal silence. It's just, it's important. But as time has passed, when silence is the rule of the game, you have greater and greater alienation. It's just the story. You don't want to be alienated. Silence is not. It's just. It's just. You can't say I want you to love Israel, but it just doesn't work that way. It's just not the way relationships are. Maybe ones that you inherit, but not ones that you have to choose. And um, unfortunately, one of the tragedies of Zionism today is that the places where there are the most vibrant, and this is coming more directly to what you asked, the more vibrant criticisms of Zionism are in the anti-Zionist camp. Now, Zionism cannot sustain itself in North America with that reality. Just can't. You need to have a vibrant conversation about the Israel that you want. And if you don't have it, then the Israel, then the conversation is going to be a rejection of Israel. And, um, but there too, it is intolerable that the only country whose existence is illegitimized as a result of its failures is Israel. That's just not coherent. And that's when anti-Zionism begins to touch the anti-Semitism in my mind and in the mind of many others. You want to criticize Israel? I'm very critical. That Israel is the worst, most approved. These categories just aren't relevant. They're not relevant. And so how do we have a responsible conversation? Now, that's part of what I find so exciting right now. Because right now in Israel, the conversation is not criticism of, but demonstrating for. It's about talking, not about what Israel's doing wrong, but what is fighting for the Israel that you want. Um, so that's the dance. Um, and I know in the, very often in the ghetto, I'm really not commenting about what you, because I, I watch you and I read about you, but I'm not living in you, so it's not. But it seems that nuance is not... <laughs> Profoundly abundant. <laughs> it's like, you know, it's just sort of, it's, you watch it, you know, it's. So what I hear you saying is that our, our public voice ought to be those who are lovers of Israel, less a justification and a defense and more an aspirational language. And because the defense is usually, who are you? Or you know what the great defense of Israel is? This is just tell you how hard it's come. Do you know when what's called a great defense of Israel? When we can get somebody to admit that it's complicated. Really? That's it? Like that's the height? It's complicated? Because complicated is meant to silence you. So I'm going to take you to Israel. You have one opinion, but I'm going to expose you so that you leave and it's complicated. 
Really? Now you're going to build a new generation of people who are, remember, Jews by choice, who choose whether they come to shul, choose whether they see themselves as Jewish, choose whether they belong. They're going to choose Israel to have to choose a relationship with Israel too, just like they have to choose whether they belong to a shul. And you think someone's going to choose because you've reached the level of convincing them that it's complicated? Like, what are you going to do with that aspirationalism? Like, what is so, and that is absent. But right now, that's a conversation taking place in Israel. And if you join it, it's no longer just a conversation. Do you like Netanyahu? Do you not like Netanyahu? Do you like the coalition? There is an Israel that is marching in the streets who mirrors a lot of the values that you care about here. So it gives you a chance to be a part of it. So, uh, you know, it's no, it's no chidush that the young, young American Jews are drifting from in, interest in this. Um, by and large in America. Um, and assuming our educational institutions even thought this way, not just about history and advocacy, but thought about being dreamers of a new Zionist project, dreamers of a next stage, assuming that was even the case, what would what would a next Israeli coalition have to look like? What would a next Israeli site have to look like to be a partner with young American Jews right. for that to be, even be possible? See, I'm working like crazy on this. Not alone, but I have shifted um, the whole methodology of my institute um, from a long-term work because educational institutions are marathons. Like a lot of your work is about 1K, 5K. Like you're not saying, oh, you know, someone needs a shower. Like, yeah, I gotta get up a shower tomorrow, right? So I'm not a I'm not a short, a short-term 100 meter dash, even though very often issues of social justice require the hundred yard dash. Like if you're not like, hello, it's today, right? It's, and that's a lot of the of the of the weight that you carry as you try to live and fulfill your responsibilities. I have three years. We can't have another coalition. And here I'm being I'm I'm being very partisan. I'm not being right wing or left wing, but I'm being very, very political. We can't have another coalition like this. Um, and think that North American Jews are going to stay. Maybe, again, I don't want to be apocalyptic. Could be one more, two more. Forget. It's like 12 years. No, they're gone. You don't have 12 years. Um, now, I had a great respect for Naftali Bennett, even though he might not have personally liked him. Uh, he was much more to the right and I'm more center, center left. I would invite him to come to the institute, but he wouldn't come. Like even before he was prime minister, in which he didn't have time. It was not where he aligned himself. But at some moment he got up and said, all of my right-wing ideology is relevant right now. We have to come together because 90% of us, or 70% of us agree on 70% or 90% of the issues. So why should I let my 10% because Nathalie Bennett, by the way, when he was Minister of Education, supported the work of the Harvard Institute because he's a liberal Jew. Nathalie Bennett was the one who pushed for a liberal Kotel in which conservative reform Jews could go. He was the one who pushed it. But he represented an idea in which right wing and left wing and center could sit together in Israel 
and, and build a coalition around a new agenda. Now, part of his agenda was again, economics and just getting the country working. But the big flaw of his national unity coalition is that while he was on the right, his voters were to the right of the Likud and didn't want him to join. So he ended up being alone. And we really didn't have a right-wing coalition. I want to see a coalition made up of, of religious Zionists and traditional Israelis and right-wing and left-wing and center. There's almost no left-wing in Israel. Who build a coalition, um, Jews and Arabs, um, who build a coalition around the new agendas of Israel. What does it mean to be a Jewish democracy? And who talk about it. Now, I'm willing for, by the way, the ultra-Orthodox to join that coalition. I think it's even valuable. But it has to be with new rules. The ultra-Orthodox could advocate for, how do I protect my space? Like every other citizen in Israel, they're deserving of respect and protection. But you don't get to decide how I'm supposed to live my religious life. It is incoherent that the ultra-Orthodox should control a rabbinate that they themselves don't even use. Because it's not kosher enough. Mm -hmm. They don't. They have their own. They don't use the rabbinate. But they're controlling the rabbinate. They're controlling conversions when they themselves don't send converts to the rabbinate. It's inconceivable that Israel should have only one rabbinate. I perform, I have a rabbinic school at the Hartman Institute. I ordain religious and secular men and women. Anybody who could create, the, who could enable more Jews to love Jews. That's like, I don't want more people to be like me. There's enough of these in the world. I could do, but anybody, a secular gay man asked me, Daniel, why are you ordaining me? And I say, because you could reach Jews that I can, and you could make them lovers of Jews. Does the rabbinate recognize? I don't know. But we don't care. Because the market, we're doing hundreds and hundreds of weddings a year. By the way, by law, we could be put in jail for performing those weddings. It's against the law. The market, like, I want a coalition that talks the talk. Not what the borders of Israel should be, but what should happen inside. Not just economic prosperity, but now in light of this last election, what do we want the Supreme Court? Should we add a constitutional referendum on equality? What does it mean to live with 20% of Israel who are non Jews? We never thought about it. Like we never fully worked it out. We never did. And so for the first time, 40% of Israel in the last election said, voted for parties which said, I am going to sit with Mansour Abbas. Even though he was in the former court, no one voted for that. It was an unknown. It was actually Netanyahu who made it possible, but that's just a quirk of history. But that's an interesting phenomenon. But they voted for that. Now we see 
approximately, again, it depends before Gaza, after Gaza, approximately 20, according to certain polls, a third of Likud voters don't plan on voting for the Likud again. A third of those who voted for Smotrich and Ben here, and in some polls even more, are saying that we all that we're not going to vote for them. So the shift has happened. There's a new coalition there, but it has to be a coalition, not just this was like it can't just be about business. It can't just be about lowering housing, which is important. It can't just be about roads. It can't just be about startup nation. It has to be about value station. And that type of coalition which embraces different people who have different issues of what Israel needs for its security, since at least in, for the foreseeable future, there is no dramatic move that's going to happen in Judea and Samaria. Abbas is in the 17th year of his four-year presence. That's not a joke. That's a fact. It's a fact. He's in the 17th year. And the reason why he can't have elections is that if elections will take place, in the West Bank or Judea and Samaria, Hamas is going to win. Nobody is engaging in a peace process with Hamas and Islamic Jihad. It's just, I yearn for it. I want a two-state solution, but okay, it's just not for the next eight, it's just not the issue. That type of Israel, which speaks those terms, which were, which, which has theories about refugees, something I know you're very, you're, you're standing up but in Israel, we have 28,000 refugees. And when Ayala Shaked became the Minister of Interior, the first thing she said, I'm going to do is I can finally deal with the refugee crisis, which is undermining the Jewishness of Israel. 28,000 African refugees are undermining the Jewishness of Israel. There's 7.7 .7 million Jews, 2.2 million non Jews. 2.2 million and 27 is now a number that's just changes the whole story. Let's talk about refugees. Let's talk about who is a Jew. Let's talk about state and religion. Let's talk about our values. Let's talk about the country we want to live in. And now it's possible. Um, and a coalition that will do that is the coalition that I... Um, it's not a partisan coalition. It's a Zionist coalition. And I'm not sleeping at night trying to figure out what I need to do to bring that about. <laughs> amazing, amazing. So diving back into the judicial reforms. Um, firstly, there are those who, who um, suggest that the divide is enormous. Those protesting hundreds of thousands here, those protesting hundreds of thousands there, couldn't be more different in their view of what they want the state of Israel to be. And others suggest actually, uh, you know, they, they largely agree it's pretty nominal pretty small differences. You know, where do you land on that? And what type of reforms do you think are valid? And what types of reforms specifically do you think are, are pose this existential threat? Move us to the weakest support, Supreme Court. Um, there are people who are for the judicial reform because they think it's necessary for Israel's democracy. There are people who are for the judicial reform who don't care about democracy. And they want to limit the Supreme Court precisely because they want to limit its ability to, to, to influence policy. So the judicial reform is made up of different groups of people. They're not the same. 
It's not the same motivation. So, for example, Gafni from UTJ, UT, something like that, United Torah Judaism Party, the Ultra Orthodox Party, says, I don't want judicial reform. I don't care about the makeup of the Supreme Court. All I want is an override clause. So that when the Supreme Court decides whatever it decides, a simple majority of the coalition could cancel the Supreme Court decision. So he says, knock yourself out. I don't care. You can have all left-wing communists on the court. Secularists, I don't care. I don't care what you decide. I just want to be able to override you. So he says, I don't, I don't need to limit your, just your power. I just need a veto. And that's the override clause, which, because it was added to the judicial reform, destroyed the conversation about judicial reform. And even though who, those who support judicial reform, even those who advocated for it, the heads of Forum Kohelet, who've been working on it for years, themselves say, Override clause, understand. It was a mistake. Now, there are some people who just want a smaller Supreme Court, and people like Ben Vier, or some within the ultra Orthodox, who just don't like you, who, who have an ultra nationalist or vision of Israel that should be dominated by halakha, and don't want a court that leads, that, that's, that, that limits on the basis of a notion of human freedom, dignity, and rights. They don't want it. So when the Supreme Court says, I'm sorry, you can't put women on the back of the bus. You can't. All the women don't care. Everybody's happy. You can't put women on the back of the bus. You can't decide that you can't put women po posters of women on buses. You can't sort of trans move them outside. You just can't do that. Or a Supreme Court that decides that an Israeli citizen who gets married on Zoom from Utah, that is a marriage. Because under Israeli law, you can't have a civil marriage in Israel. But if you marry outside of Israel, Israel has to recognize your wedding by international law because otherwise Israel's weddings will not be. So Supreme Court is standing there. Supreme Court says the settlements in West Bank are legal. Supreme Court has ruled that the settlements in the West Bank do not violate either international law or Israeli law. And that it's in the hands of the government to determine the future of the West Bank or Judaism. But they stated you can't build settlements on private land because one of the rules of occupation is that you can occupy the land controlled by the prior government in the event, in the event that it was captured in a war of self-defense and you can't yet return it. But what you can't do is take the local population and remove them. And one of the key issues is whether you can take their land. That's it. This is, this is, so there's something that I want to be able to do whatever I want to do. I want to be able to start a bunch of settlements wherever I want to settle so that to make sure that 
we are in the midst of each other because there is an ideology which sees conflict with Palestinians as essential for the future of the state of Israel. And it is only through conflict that we are going to fortify our national ideology and consciousness. So all that is there. So when we come to the Supreme Court, so those who don't care about democracy and human rights, there's nothing to them. But there are many, many people who advocate for reform because they feel that Israel's Supreme Court is too powerful and anti-democratic. If you share with me democratic values and principles and sensitivities, I could talk to you. Good people could share values but disagree on policy. Now, the biggest issue, which is legitimate in the reform, and we, it's, you'll decide how much detail you want, there is a right, every court uses the category of reasonableness to ascertain to what extent the police or the executive, principally government, is implementing a law. A law is passed. Are you reasonable in the use of that law? So you say you could search if there's cause. Was there cause? Was there not cause? Are you being reasonable in what you're doing? Now, courts are constantly using reasonableness to try to assess what was the intent of the law and how are you implementing it in a reasonable That's what courts do. But in Israel, the Supreme Court doesn't just assess the reasonableness in the implementation of law. It has set itself up to determine any decisions of the government, whether they're reasonable or not. On the basis of criteria, which have no legal basis. And one of the things that elections are about are people picking representatives to determine what they think is reasonable. And so even if there's not a standing, for example, and no human rights are being violated, the court says it's not reasonable and has positioned itself and intervened in the political discourse in ways that, as people have taught, that that's unreasonable itself. Hmm. So there is room. Hmm. There's room. Um, and we could talk. Serious people who care about human rights care about democracy, care about the need for a strong judiciary, mm -hmm. can reach compromises. But the problem is, today, more often than not, even when you have a substantive position, you end up locking yourself in a partisan universe in which you undermine the depth of your substance and you just become a mouthpiece. And when that happens, when mouthpiece speaks with mouthpiece, compromise is very hard to find. So a last question before you, for you before we open up the conversation, and it's not a question you're gonna like, um, because uh, I'm gonna ask you not to be a dreamer. I mean, you can't have your cake and eat it too. I wanna have my cake and eat it too, but you can't have it. You talked about being Jewish and being democratic, right? And we want that. But in the event that we have to choose one, in the political scenarios that we don't move down the path where we can either have Jewish sovereignty or we can um, or we can hold up the, the, the highest levels of democratic values, which of those do you choose? 
So I actually, this is not a dream. I don't believe that Jewish and democratic are in conflict with each other. Um, when it comes to self-defense, I have that right under human rights. Self-defense is a human right. So I'm not, I don't compromise on my people's safety and on my country's security. I'm not. I am for a two-state solution. But right now I know it can't be implemented. And I don't want to, and I won't even try to implement it because I have a right to live. So right now, now, if I could go back 50 years. So you said we could suspend the, the democratic values. It's not, it's not, I mean, it's, a, it's, see, the words are complicated. It's not democratic, it's, it's a commitment. I am committed to the equality of the Palestinian people and to the creation of a Palestinian state that will live side by side with Israel, as long as it could live side by side with Israel. And the lack, the ability, the fact that it cannot is not undermining my commitment to human rights. I'm sorry, I'm not, there is not, maintaining the current status quo is not a human rights violation. If the other side is not creating a possibility of my, of, of, of the fulfillment of my right to live. Now, um, so on that, that's again, now, do I think we were always right? No. Do I think we could have done other things? Sure. Would it have helped? I don't know. Would I build settlements outside of the settlement blocks now? No. Would I create tax incentives that people should leave the small settlements outside of the settlement blocks? Yes. Instead of giving people who live outside of the settlement blocks tax incentives, I give them tax liabilities. There's things that I would do. But the overall, the statement that the occupation itself is an inherent racist apartheid regime, I think it's just simply wrong. Could we do it better? Yes. But it's, it's you have to ask what other alternatives are on the table. And I at least believe, not that it's complicated, I believe that it is exceptionally reasonable to argue that under the current conditions, a negotiated two-state solution is not possible. Now, but then you continue. So I'm with you. Now, when it comes to inside the state of Israel, there's no existential threat. And the more democratic Israel is, the more Jewish it is, because for me, democracy is part of my Judaism. Now, I know that there are people who don't believe that, okay? I have a cultural war and struggle with some of Israel. But the majority of Israelis embrace democracy as a Jewish value, as inherent to the Jewish state. This is the Declaration of Independence started it. And we're back there. That's where they are. So, I, you know, what will, it's just, I, I, I'm, I'm having difficulty articulating the moment when I'm going to have to compromise my democratic values for the sake of my Jewish values. I think, for me, a Jewish state, again, if we were a minority in Israel, would I keep Israel, Israel, if we were a minority who had to limit the rights 
of a majority to vote? My answer is no. But that's not the case. We have a we we won. And part of what we want is the ability for democracy and Judaism to, we could be proud Jews and embrace equality for all of Israel. Yes, does that mean that Israeli Arabs have, we're gonna to have to come up with new immigration policies to allow family unification? Sure. Does that mean that Israel's gonna to have to look far more seriously about its responsibilities to refugees around the world? Sure. Does that mean that Israel is gonna to have to allocate its resources equally amongst all of its citizens? Sure. I just don't buy the moment when, tell me when that moment will be. And then if it's security, if it's not engaged in my, in my right to self-defense, which is a democratic human rights issue, um, I'm never gonna choose. I am gonna have my cake and eat it. <laughs> okay, very nice. Okay, so what I'd like to do is maybe take four or five questions now, and then you'll just give a kind of closing address if Great. that works. Fine. So let's hear from a bunch of folks. Um, Eddie's going to work the mic. Thanks, Eddie. Hi there. Thank you so much. And it was wonderful hearing you dream about this coalition. And I, but I want to push you a little bit on it because it seems to me, and you're free to disagree with anything that I'm saying, of course, that one of the ways that Israel has operated in, you know, since its inception and still today to a large degree is that different sectors of the society are responsible for different areas. So you're like, the settlers, they're sort of responsible for, you know, you know, they go and settle where they want to settle, and eventually they get, you know, recognition or they don't get recognition or whatever. The ultra-orthodox, they have their second society that they're responsible for. The Supreme Court, the secular Israel, they have their second society that they're responsible for. And so there's a kind of partitioning of different kinds of responsibilities. And it's sort of, you know, there's been enough mutual acceptance of these different realms that it sort of works out. But what you seem to be aspiring to is something where actually there's a kind of coming together. And I just, I'd love for you to, try, I'd like to push you to just be a bit more specific what it looks like, because it seems to me that the reason that Israel looks the way it looks, which is related to the fact that Israel doesn't have a constitution, is because it's really so, so difficult and perhaps impossible for all these, these different worldviews actually to actually compromise and come to some kind of agreement about what they can accept or not accept from one another. I think you're Your decision. You're the one advised. Okay. okay. All right, let's keep going. Thank you so much. My challenge is I'm going to have to remember. <laughs> so we're going to. Bye, Martin. Nice to see you again. How are you? Good, thank you. Really nice to see you. Um, my question is I think there's a lot of people who believe that Netanyahu wants to change the Supreme Court to save himself. Is there any truth to that? Is that bad? Gonna We're going to take three for a first round, and then we'll have a second round. How about that? Because that's going to be enough. Yeah. Okay. okay. Um, Rabbi, uh, this goes back to uh, Shmuley's question about um, the conflict between uh, Jewishness of Israel and the democracy within the nation of Israel. Um, Hitler dreamed of a Germany that was neutral, where there would be no Jews. We now have a member of the Israeli cabinet, Gidamar Ben-Gavir, a disciple of Rabbi Kahan, 
Rabbi Kahana said that when he was prime minister, which fortunately never happened, uh, that uh, all of the Arabs would leave in war, they would be annihilated. Uh, Itamar Ben-Gavir has now said that one of the reasons he's staying in the government is to push for the Judaization of the Galilee and the negative. I'm sure the Druze and the Bedouins who live there are thrilled uh, with that. How do you uh, reconcile that statement with the conflict in the Jewishness and the democracy in Israel? Okay, let's take a pause on questions there. Let's take a pause here. Thank you. Thank you. Not in order of importance, but maybe in the length of the answer. I don't believe that Netanyahu wants to change the Supreme Court in order to protect us. I don't think that's the issue. I don't think he himself wanted judicial reform. He wasn't interested. Um, I think he actually figures that it's not going to help him anyway. For him to be prime minister, because somehow the Supreme it would just stain him forever. And most of this judicial reform is not going to apply to his standing trial. There are other things. There are other things, for example, changing or appointing a certain person who's attorney general who will then decide that the case is not justified anymore. But it's, it, it is such, an, and then the Supreme Court could override it and then they can't. It's a, it's, uh, the, there was one issue and that was the potential of the court deciding that was unreasonable for Netanyahu to remain prime minister while he's under trial. There, were, there was a petition. And um, they decided not. But under Israeli law, a person can be accused of a crime and not be um, forced out of becoming prime minister. So he's, I don't think that's the primary motivation. I think it's more, I think Netanyahu personally, again, um, you know, and everybody in Israel has their own inside sources, um, has lost it. I think the trial, his wife, his, I think the whole environment within which he lives um, has destabilized many of the choices that he's making. And I think whole, I think the people who want the judicial reform are Levine and Rotman. I don't think it wasn't a primary Likud issue. They wanted to change some of the makeup of the election of, of justices. One minor issue which could have found a certain, and again, so I actually don't think that's the issue. I think the coalition that he formed, which is then advocating for all this without him stopping it, is a byproduct of his weakened position. Um, so I, I would direct that way. Your very thoughtful, detailed question. Uh, Itamar Ben-Gvir formally declares that he no longer adopts those positions of Mayor Kahan. He has said this over and again. The Judaizing of the Galil and the Negev, um, which is a very, very problematic statement, but is very widely accepted in Israel, unfortunately. It's one of those moral lapses. has nothing to do with removing Bedouins or Arabs from the Galil or the Negev. It's about growing Jewish population there which again, the language of Judaizing is an, is an abomination, but it is an abomination 
it goes back to the founding of Zionism. We want to lead ahead at the Khalil Banegev. That was Ben Gurion. Eris, Robin spoke about it. It's not a Ben Gvir. Now, Ben Gvir, and even when all is said and done, um, even if Ben Gvir is a racist, Ben Gvir on these policies is not determining the policies of the government of Israel. The fact that he's in the government is an abomination, but it's not the same. So everything has gradations, and those gradations are really, really important. Because Judaizing, it's not about banishment. It's, 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 it's the Zionist dream of settling the land. And it goes back to another era. Um, so that's, and I don't like Ben Gvir, but since he's been in power, um, his ability to advocate for racist legislation has been non-existent. It doesn't mean it will stay that way, but we're, we're going to watch it. As to your comment, Israel is a profoundly tribal society. And one of the ways that tribal societies, you know, the, prime, the president of Israel famously spoke about the four tribes of Israel. And he spoke about the religious, the religious Zionist, ultra-Orthodox, secular, and Arab. And the funny thing about his statement is that we wish it was four tribes. There's really 67 tribes, sub-tribes. But part of what's been happening now is the reverse of what you're saying. Is individual tribes trying to govern the lives, lives of other tribes. That's where the system is falling apart right if the ultra-Orthodox were worried about a road in their neighborhood being open or closed on Shabbos, that's legitimate. When you want to determine whether a restaurant could be open in Ashdod, where you're not, that's another issue. It's another issue altogether. And even, what are the It's true, religious Zionists Religious Zionists gave up issues of state and religion a long time ago as their central issues. But again, you a person could advocate for maintaining control of Judaic Samaria. A person could advocate for natural growth of settlements. But it doesn't mean that a person could then advocate for policies that make peace impossible or which violate human rights. In other words, part of what we have now is a breaking down of the tribal divides. And each group, one of the great ironies of Israeli society is that each group thinks it's a persecuted minority. And as a result, boundaries aren't like I'm fighting for my survival and you're, I have to get into your space. And so part of what is happening, I think some of the critical issues are the breaking down of that. And I think the notion that the Supreme Court is, is an agenda for the secular, that itself is just not, shouldn't be true. And if it was, that's part of what's changing. So I think we're going to have to come up with a new system on state and religion, human rights, democracy, Supreme Courts, that don't simply fit into the tribal, um, the old tribal place. I wish... Israel is a society in which each tribe said, 
I care about my rights in my space, then life would be simple. You know the old Mishnah. Um, two people are holding on to a garment, right? What does the Mishnah say? Two people are holding on to a garment. This one says, I found. This one says, I found. This one says, it's all mine. This one says, it's all mine. That poses a problem, right? What are you going to do? So the Mishnah then determines, it says you have to divide it. But imagine if this one says, two people are holding on to a gun. This one says, you found. And this one says, you found. This one says, yeah, it's only half mine. And this one says, okay. That life would be easy. We're breaking down these tribal divisions. Um, and there is a sense of some tribes that they have been subjugated. So, for example, the periphery or the Misurti tribe, Svaradi tribe, feels that the Ashke old Ashkenazi establishment has always violated their rights. So it's... It, it, it's about coming up with a new social con construct, maybe in some cases to move us back to our own spaces, and in other cases realizing that in a country we have to share with each other because that's the nature of a national enterprise. Um, so that's, I, I hope you feel that I, I responded. So um, I'm going to give Rabbi Hartman a chance to give a closing remark. You're, if you have other questions, we hope you'll ask it at dessert. And at book signing, we have some books that Rabbi Hartman uh, wrote that were, uh, there's a few left, I think, right? Yeah, a few left. Um, if you'd like him to sign a book um, and to talk with him over wine or tea or dessert, whatever we have out uh, down the hall, if you just want to offer a closing, uh, closing thought or two. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Um, there's a new opportunity for you to care. There's a new opportunity for you to express your love for Israel. You just have to work, shift gears. Love for Israel, which for so long expressed itself in support and a willingness to be quiet. You need to activate a new muscle. I can tell you in Israel, for the first time we're watching you. For most of the history of Israel, we didn't care what you did. If you wanted to make it into the press in Israel, there either had to be an anti-Semitic event or you had to assimilate. Those are the two things that Israelis like to report. I'm being serious. But now they're watching. Because part of what we have now is a movement not from the top down, but from the bottom up. It's not a legislative transformation. There is a social marshal to lay claim to a vision for the future. And in the highly politicized Israel, one of the things that was remarkable is that it turns out that you could have a majority in the Knesset and still not be able to do everything they want. Turns out that a citizen doesn't just vote every four years, that we have voice. And that voice is power. You could be part of that voice. Israeli Jews want to hear you, or my part of Israeli Jews want to hear you. <laughs> and, they, and they take comfort and they take strength from you. That same Israel would say, shh, 
be at a joke. Israelis wanted you to be at a joke. Support us with no moral aspirations. Now, Israelis are looking for partners. Find ways in your community to be a part of a new conversation. It, you know, I, by nature, I'm just an optimist. But the reality is, is you can't be in education without being an optimist. It's just the wrong field, right? If you don't think that change is possible, you're not in the change business. But there's grounds for my optimism. And we have a moment in which we can marshal as people. And not just each time talk about what Israel has done wrong. But to think about, to engage, advocate for, support, give voice to the Israel that we've all been dreaming. We're strong. Now we have the space. My bracha to you. It's really a bracha. It's not a, it's not a prayer. Even. I'm not praying. My bracha is that you'll find that new voice for yourself. And I firmly believe that Israel and Zionism will have new meaning in your life. And in that new meaning, you will be players and contributors together with the liberal forces in Israel for building a new future. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Rabbi, since you gave us a bracha, we give you a bracha to continue to have success Thank you. and joy in all of your work and inspire us to all engage more deeply. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Valley Beit Midrash podcast. Remember, that you can join our email list at valleybatemidrash.org to stay up to date on new programs, learning opportunities, and more ways to stay connected. If you enjoyed learning with us today, support our work by making a donation at valleybatemidrash.org slash donate. Join us next time as we continue to work together to build a better world. Thanks for listening.